Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. This week, we're starting a series on the book of 2 John entitled, Walking in Truth and Love. This series affirms that you don't have to give up one for the other. So join us in 2 John as we go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfound. It has been said that there are two kinds of people in the Christian community. One kind are the love people. Love people think of things like unity and acceptance and harmony between believers as things of main importance. Love people look for ways in which people of the opposite sides on a fence, on all kinds of issues, will find their way through to understanding and accepting each other. Love people want to make sure that everyone gets heard. Love people remind us that the cross is an expression of love and remind us that God himself is love. But love people have a huge weakness, one they don't often understand. Love people often lack discernment. They often don't protect the church from forces of evil. They don't know how or often why at times we need to draw a hard line in the sand. They often tolerate false teaching because they don't like to confront it. And if left to them, the faith would soon be watered down and ultimately give way, and Satan would defeat the church. The other kind of people in the Christian community are the truth people. Truth people care deeply about the salvation of the lost and remind us that unless the truth is declared, no one can be saved. Truth people remind us that Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Truth people point to Jude verse 3, that the faith must be defended. Truth people talk about discernment. Truth people often know Greek. Truth people can teach you how to study your Bible. But truth people also have a huge weakness, one they often don't understand. Truth people often become harsh, judgmental, and often lack grace. Sometimes truth people also destroy the church because they don't care about people, only concepts. But here's the good news. You don't ever have to choose between being a love person or a truth person. It shouldn't be a trade-off. In fact, we should think that growing in both love and truth is part of Christian discipleship. Today, I'm going to show you how to hold both truth and love together and why that's so essential. I'm saying these things to introduce a new one-week study of a very rarely studied book in the Bible. It's the second book of John. I suppose one of the reasons it's studied so infrequently is because it's the shortest book in the New Testament. In the original Greek, it had only 245 words, and in our Bibles, it has only 13 verses. Some Bible teachers have called it a postcard epistle. That's because it would fit so easily on one piece of papyri and could be sent without having to attach a series of pages or even a long rolled-up scroll. One piece of paper containing everything this extremely short book wanted to say. You know, what's interesting about this book is that in the very few verses found here, there is an amazing repetition of words. Truth is found five times, love four times, commandment four times, walk three times, teaching three times, and children also three times. And so it's not hard to see what John is driving at. It even becomes easier to see John's theme when you consider the book only contains two imperatives or two commands. The first is found in verse 8. Watch yourselves, says John. Watch out how you're living your lives and watch out for those who are trying to deceive you. The second command is found in verse 10. Do not receive false teachers into your house. Stay away from them. Those are the only two commands. 
But alongside of those two commands in verse 5, which although it is not grammatically an imperative, virtually functions as one. Love one another. So we see again from the repeated words that are used, love and truth function as the center of this book. We must have both. Love and truth must be combined or one misses essential Christianity. If I were to put this book into four themes, they would go like this. Number one, walk or live your life in the truth, for God's truth is eternal, never changes, and it never goes away. Secondly, obey God's commandments, because walking in the truth necessitates obedience. You can't ignore the things God commands you to do. And thirdly, love one another, for love and the commands are related to each other. And fourth, guard the truth, especially from deceivers and the Antichrist, because this kind of thing abounds. But let's step back for a moment. Who is the author of this short little book that takes up so little room close to the end of the New Testament? And unlike the way in which so many of our New Testament letters begin, like, for instance, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, or James, a servant of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, or Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, this one starts with just two words identifying the author, the elder. No name, no further identification, just the elder. The book is written by the apostle John, who writes from the ancient city of Ephesus. Church tradition tells us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, lived there until she died, and John was there with her. You remember that on the cross, Jesus had given John the command to care for Mary as if she were his own mother, and apparently John did just that. But the date of this letter is somewhere between A.D. 85 to 95. John was a young man when he first followed Jesus, probably the youngest of the apostolic group, but now it's 60 years later. He has seen the birth of the early church. He has witnessed the day of Pentecost, that day when Peter preached and 3,000 came to Christ. He watched as the church grew in number, the excitement as people were daily converted. He watched as the church went global, escaping her Jewish bounds and penetrating deeply into the Gentile and Roman world. But he also saw the rise of the Roman emperor Nero and his horrific persecution against believers as under his leadership, both Peter and Paul were put to death. Indeed, at the time of the writing of this book, John alone remained. All of the other apostles had now lost their lives in the service of Christ. John saw a fiery persecution against the church. But John also lived through A.D. 70, as the Roman army burned Jerusalem to the ground and then drove the Jewish people from their homeland. And now he was living during the reign of another Roman Caesar, a man named Domitian, the man who instigated the second great persecution against the Christian church, who made a rule, and I quote this rule, no Christian once brought before the tribunal should be exempted from punishment without renouncing his religion. And even more so, Domitian made it his role that if there was a famine or an earthquake or an outbreak of disease in any part of the Roman Empire, that Christians and their accursed religion should be blamed as the reason for this. Many Christians were martyred under his reign, and John himself, as an old man, probably shortly after he wrote this book, would be banished to the island of Patmos, where he would write the book of Revelation. John is now the last surviving apostle. He refers to himself as the elder and not an elder. Now, of course, we know that there were many elders in the early church, so why this title? Why the elder? And the answer is twofold. 
first referring to himself as the elder, does refer to John's age. He must be close to 80 years old when he writes. He's no doubt one of, if not the oldest leader in the church in his day. But as the last remaining apostle, he is the elder, the one whose status as a leader in the early church is unchallenged, the last living personal connection, the last living apostle whom Jesus called. To receive a letter from such a one must surely have been very significant. It is in this context that he writes this one-page letter. But who is John writing to? The letter simply begins to the elect lady and her children. There have been a great deal of differences among Bible teachers regarding who this elect lady actually was. Some, in fact, most modern Bible scholars have argued that this is actually a reference to the local church. Those who hold this position argue that since John calls the church the bride, the wife of the Lamb in the book of Revelation, that this is his way of addressing the church. Since this letter could fall into the wrong hands, this is a kind of code in which believers would understand this as a letter to the church. But others don't agree for at least two reasons. First, there are no other places in the Bible where the church is called the elect lady. In fact, when a church is mentioned in Revelation, the book that is written to seven churches during this same time of intense persecution, churches are called Church of Smyrna, Church of Thyatira, and so forth. There's no place in the New Testament where the church is ever referred to in this kind of, quote, code language. And secondly, some Bible teachers argue that the context of this letter seems to point away from this being a church. If the lady is the church, who are her children? They can't be church members because the church is the people of God. It's not the people of God who are the children of the church. In the early church, the idea that the leaders are the church and the people are their children is also unknown. Notice also that in verse 4, we learn that some of the lady's children are walking in the truth. I mean, some would the lady, the church, only have some of her children in the truth. And according to verse 9, if you're not abiding in the teachings of Christ, you don't have God. And yet others argue that's exactly the point of this book. During this period in church history, it would have been very common to have itinerant or traveling ministries who stopped in various churches to teach. They had created great confusion, had led some astray, and had even infiltrated the church. So where do we go? I think it better to go in the direction of a literal interpretation until shown differently. In my estimation, this book is written to a woman whom John knew, But who is she, and why would the last living apostle write her at all? Stay tuned as we come back. When we study what could be considered a minor book of the New Testament, one that is easily overlooked, I think we may be surprised at the depth of what we find. For instance, we learn more about the apostle John who wrote this book and discover that what he discusses here about being people of love and truth are issues that are deeply important today. Join us after the break as we begin to see who this letter was actually written to and what we can learn from these opening verses. With only a few days left to the end of our fiscal year, we want to thank all those who've been able to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada with a financial gift. We're close to reaching the goal of $365,000, but it will take a significant effort to make it all the way. We do realize many across the country find themselves in challenging financial times. If you're not able to give, we understand. We also recognize the importance of prioritizing your giving to the church. 
This is a value we've always held as a ministry. The church is critical to every believer, every community, and the wider purposes of the gospel. Having taken care of that, if you are able and you value the Bible teaching ministries of Back the Bible Canada, perhaps you'd consider sending a financial gift to sustain this ministry. Your gift would mean so much. On behalf of the entire ministry team, Dr. Newfeld, Phil Calloway, the hosts of In Doubt, thank you for allowing Back to the Bible Canada the privilege to continue to offer Bible teaching you can trust. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Let's read 2 John verses 1 to 3. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. If we are right in assuming that this is a literal woman, what do we learn? Well, first notice how formal John is as he addresses her. He doesn't call her by name, but rather calls her elect lady. That does sound strange. Compare this to 3 John, which is also written to an individual, is not formal at all. There John simply begins, to the beloved Gaius. But 2 John doesn't say to the beloved Martha or something like that. So why this formality in 2 John, to the elect lady? I think the answer might be obvious. The early church took great pains not to allow even a hint of sexual impropriety to be found among them. By the time of the third century, the great Christian preacher John Chrysostom, a single man, had a woman who cared for some of his needs, but neither he or she were ever alone together or ever addressed each other by their names, but by their titles. This was considered modest Christian behavior. As John is writing a woman whom he loves in the Lord, he's keen to make it very plain that the kind of love that he is speaking about is a godly love. We can never read this as John's mistress or the woman John secretly loved or anything like that. John, for all his talk of love, will always make sure that when he speaks of love, he's speaking about the love that is wrapped in a garment of truth, the truth of the purity of Christ that's in him. And so John was formal with this woman he loved, not informal. By the way, we might all learn something from that. How often have so-called friendships between men and women developed into romances and even sexual trysts? John seems to have modeled both affection and appropriate boundaries at the same time. If I can use a personal example here, I worked for years with a woman who never addressed me in any other way than Pastor John. Her clear expression to me at all times was that she would never forget the kind of relationship we shared. You know, I, for my part, felt enormously comfortable with that. And to this day, I honor her faithfulness to the Lord. But let's get back to our text. Who then is this woman? Of course, we can never say with certainty, but if we study this text, we can put together a bit of a portrait. First of all, notice that she had children, and I assume she had quite a few. Secondly, John mentions no husband, which he would do if there was one. You know, in the early church, widows were a great concern. 
Since there was no government social plans, widows were sometimes left as destitute, and so we read in Acts 6, for example, that the church began to feed needy widows. This was an act of love. But as time went on, this feeding program was being abused. Some widows realized that they could get food from the church, and this gave them opportunity to become gossips and busybodies rather than giving their lives to service. And so comes an opportunity for instruction. Widows who needed financial help from the church were only given help or put on the list of widows if they had proved themselves to be faithful Christian women. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 5, 9, and 10. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. So it seems quite likely that this elect lady was a widow who had all the qualifications mentioned in 1 Timothy. Her children were grown, and she used her extra time to serve the people of God in whatever way she could. Now, because of the contents of this letter, especially in verse 10, I assume that this elect lady was not on the list of needy widows. I assume she had some money. In fact, she had a house large enough for believers either to meet there or that her hospitality was a place where itinerant preachers and church planters and missionaries and other Christian workers could stay. And John writes to her, as we will see, because she was in the habit of allowing false teachers to come into her house and upset the faith of some. You see, I think this elect lady is one of the love people who needs to be balanced with truth. Because of this, John wants to teach her how to balance those two issues in her life, the balance of love and truth. Now, we can learn several things about how John himself balances truth and love. See, the balance of love and truth is the basis for all relationships. Notice that John does not say that he loves her. He loves her in truth. In fact, he's quick to add something further. Not only does he love her, so do all who know the truth. So first of all, he speaks of a love that is in truth and then of a love that is shared by all who know the truth. The love John has for this faithful woman is a shared love, not an exclusive love, or the kind of love one has in marriage. All other loves in the faith are shared loves. We've already noticed that John is concerned to make sure that he's not giving this woman signals of sexual attraction, but there is something else found here. It is the bond of truth that holds all believers together in love. In fact, by calling this woman elect, he reminds her that the love they share is one of a sacred calling by God. As Paul noted earlier in Ephesians 1, all believers know the reality of God having chosen them from before the foundations of the earth. Furthermore, the bond of truth is the truth they share. He and she and the rest of God's people know the reality of the truth that was once for all delivered to the saints. God's truth is not about private interpretation or separate viewpoints. It's about God's declaration, which he has made plain to his apostles. Now, let's look again at verse 2. There John speaks about the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. That language sounds so very close to John 15, verse 4, abide in me and I in you. Whatever John has in mind when he speaks about the truth is not a theory. It is rather a fact that God has revealed himself in Jesus. Where does the love that John and this woman have for each other come from? It comes from the truth that abides in them. It is in Christ himself. Now, having established that, John now goes on. 
The balance of love and truth describe our blessings from God. Look now again at verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us, he says. Now, those of you who know your Bible well will remember that Paul often opened his letters with words that sound something like that. He would say, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from Jesus Christ our Lord. In fact, those words grace and peace seem to have been a common Christian greeting in the ancient church. I have no doubt that Paul taught the church to greet each other in that way. So instead of saying hi or how you doing, as we say today, Christians would greet each other by saying grace to you and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. I know that's a mouthful, but it's a rather rich mouthful, wouldn't you agree? Now, John greets this woman in this standard Christian way, but adds his own unique word to the mix, the word mercy. Grace is God's unmerited favor, undeserved kindness in the cross of Jesus. Mercy is God's compassion to those who need grace, those who are in great trouble. And peace means peace with God. The long war between God and us has ended. So let me say it another way. In grace, God acted for us in a way that we did not deserve. In mercy, God is not doing to us what we do deserve. And in peace, God has reconciled us to himself and called us his friends. These three things abide in us, and John says they will be with us forever. And then he adds, these three things, grace, mercy, and peace, they come from God the Father, and they also come from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. Here's the painting of a picture of Jesus, a Jesus who is fully human and also fully equal with a father. And as we work our way through this little book, we're going to see how important that concept is to John. But then he ends, in truth and love. He says, in effect, I'm wishing you the standard Christian greeting, which is the blessing from God. But I pray you experience this blessing by knowing the balance of love and truth. Let's pray we learn this well as we study this important book. Heavenly Father, we know that none of us are perfectly balanced, but we know that as we read your word, we become more balanced in how you want us to be. Lord, help us to know the value of these two things, love and truth, for the sake of your glory and for the greatness of your name. Amen. Reading 2 John can certainly cause us to examine whether we're love people or truth people. And in doing so, we can strive to become a better balance of the two. I think John's short letter will teach us many critical lessons and help us return to the heart of our faith. I hope that today's program has encouraged you in your walk with Christ. Join us tomorrow for our continuation of the series in 2 John with Dr. John Newfeld, entitled Love and the Commandments. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Over the past months, I've been asked a few of the same questions a number of times. Typically, they would be, how is Dr. Neufeld? And the answer is, great. He's working from home for the most part, but well and safe. Another question is, how is the ministry doing financially? Well, to that I say, God is good. He provides. Gracious partners across the country continue to give, and we're so appreciative. Times are uncertain, and we must tighten our belts, so to speak, but we walk in confidence. 
So thank you for staying in touch. Thank you for supporting in prayer. And thank you to those, including our monthly partners, who continue to give regularly. And for those who are not able at this time, we understand. Please keep praying for the ministry. To learn more about the Bible teaching resources available through the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, or to support the ministry with a financial gift today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.